narrative that unfolds. We thought of the rich theology that these details communicate to us. The amazing prophecies of Jesus' birth. The virgin birth itself and then the incarnation that God would be flesh and dwell among us. That's what's happening at Christmas. That God himself has come to earth. But then, most amazingly of all, we thought not about what God did, but about why God did it. The gospel of Christmas is his pursuing love. God himself come to earth in a form we could kill so that we might find forgiveness in him. The glorious message of Christmas. This week, though, I want us to focus on, on something else. See, don't get me wrong, I love these, I love the amazing, remarkable, unbelievable things about Christmas. They make us smile, they make us celebrate, they make us worship. But I'm also quite taken with the mundane, average, ordinary elements of the Christmas story too. Why am I taken with these? I think because often that's more what life is like. You know, day-to-day isn't amazing, remarkable, unbelievable. Day-to-day experientially is often more mundane, average, ordinary. And this is very much true in the Christian life as well. You know the kind of thing I mean. That, that there's been seasons in your life, certainly, where you've had this sort of sense of spiritual energy and, and vibrancy. But uh, perhaps nothing dramatic has happened. Perhaps there's not been a crisis in faith. But little by little, slowly but subtly, in the mundane and in the routine, you find yourself sitting here today a little spiritually flat. Feeling spiritually flat. Uh, Rosie's car had a, had a slow leak in one of the tires and I thought it just needed some air so I put some air in. A couple of weeks later it was flat again, put some more air in. Third time it happened I knew something was up and so often that can happen in our spiritual lives too. That just slowly, suddenly, without ever particularly noticing it, you realize you've kind of got a slow leak in your soul. Sometimes this manifests in just a a lack of intimacy with God. You remember those days where you were just excited to wake up in the morning and the first thing you'd do would be open your Bible and spend some time in the Word and spend some time in in prayer? You even used to set the alarm for a little bit earlier to make sure that you'd get to it. Now, you're not sure exactly when it happened, but you just sort of fell out of that discipline. And now the first thing you reach for in the morning is your iPhone to check the headlines or check your email or check the weather. (laughs) After the first service, someone came up to me and and they thought I'd said that the first thing you reach for is your rifle. (laughs) It's like... It's like, like, you know, it's a sermon on being spiritually flat. Things aren't that bad, okay? Perhaps it doesn't manifest in your in intimacy with God, but perhaps it does manifest in your intimacy with, with other Christians. So you used to have relationships where you would get with men, you'd get with women, with, with friends who would pour into each other, and you really enjoyed relationships that were formed and centered around those things that, that mattered the most. And you still know those people, you still see them, perhaps you even pass them in the hallways, and maybe you're even always saying, hey, we need to get together. But it's not, it doesn't actually happen. Slowly but surely, you've just sort of drifted from these kind of positive relationships. Perhaps spiritual fatness manifests itself in, in, in service. There was a time where you were happy to give time, even your, your weekend, to serve and volunteer in the church or, or in your community. 
And then life just got a little bit busy, and you meant to get back to it after this busy season, but you just never really quite got there, and you've drifted from serving God. Perhaps it's with generosity. Remember those days where you were really excited uh, about, about giving of your resources? You even came up with a great spreadsheet that would enable you to tithe, right? And, you know, you just drifted little by little and new responsibilities came in and you intended to get back to it once that loan was paid off or once that other thing had been paid for, but you just never really got back into it. You never really got back into joyful dependence upon the Lord. Are those seasons, I remember those seasons where you were excited to share the gospel with people and you enjoyed the thrill, you enjoyed the fear of being used by God in that way. And then you maybe started a new job or you came into a new circle and just slowly, subtly, without ever realizing it, you just started to shy away from doing that. And now you can't remember, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And even the prospect of doing so makes you feel a little awkward. Or perhaps, for many of us, a spiritual flatness manifests itself kind of in our lack of, of holiness. There was a time, there was a season, maybe even not all that long ago, where you really wanted every decision you made to be, to be honoring to the Lord. And you enjoyed the peace and the flourishing that joyful obedience brought to your life. And again, you're not sure when it happened, but you just started to compromise. You started to drift a little, and now you're embarrassed. You're ashamed about some of the things that you've been involved in. You've drifted from making God your priority. All of us have this struggle with being spiritually flat. And for all of us, it manifests in different ways. And if that's you this morning, then this sermon is for you. And it's definitely for me. Because into this reality of of spiritual flatness, into the kind of leak of soul that we can get over time, this passage speaks two great, powerful truths. Two truths that have been encouraging to me and that I hope will be encouraging to you as well. Let's look at these two things together. The first encouraging thing that this passage speaks into our spiritual flatness, it comes in the person of Mary and of Joseph and it's simply this, that the gospel, Jesus comes to ordinary people. The gospel, Jesus comes to ordinary people. It's quite a staggering privilege when you think of it, right? To be entrusted with raising the savior of the world. That seems like a big deal to me. I imagine the conversation up in heaven, you know, God saying, I will make him in charge of a business. And I will make her produce great works of art. And I will make her fantastic with numbers. And those guys, I will give them the savior of the world. Right? You can have imagined the angels thinking, oh, yeah, these guys, Mary Joseph, they must have their stuff together. You know, this is, this is a big deal to be entrusted with the savior of the world. But when we come to the text, we find out that Mary and Joseph are actually decidedly normal, decidedly ordinary. They're not powerful, they're not people of great status or great influence, it's not President Joseph, it's not Queen Mary. They're not particularly popular, the scene we've read in Acts 2, it doesn't really sound like Oscar night. Nobody rolls out the red carpet for Joseph, nobody asks Mary who she's wearing. They're not powerful, they're not popular, they're also not particularly pious. Joseph isn't an ordained authority and Mary has never written you know, a best-selling devotional. That's not who we get introduced to. What do we know about them? To be honest, not a whole lot. 
Joseph, we know, well, we get a sense, he seems like a good man. Remember the text where uh, he finds out that his uh, <clears throat> wife-to-be is, is, is pregnant, and at this time he doesn't know how she's become pregnant, and so he resolves to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to bring public shame or, or public disgrace upon this young woman. So we see a kind of tenderness or, or kindness in his heart. Seems like a good guy. Uh, we know, of course, that he was a carpenter. He's an average man with calluses on his hands. He's ordinary. Well, what about Mary? What do we know about her? Again, not a whole lot, but again, we seem to get a sense that she seems like a good woman. When the angel appears to her and says that she will bear a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, she's very open and willing to be used by the Lord in that way. As the text continues, she, we see her depicted as a, a very normal mother. If you look at, uh, flick over to verse 48 of chapter 2, we see just this great... Um, normal mothering moment as she worries about her son. Jesus has gone missing and now he shows up and she says verse 48, son, why have you treated us so? Behold your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She says to Jesus, the God man, son, why are you treating us so? She says the words that every mother has said to every son in the history of the world, right? A normal woman worrying about her son. An average gal with stretch marks on her belly. She's ordinary. She's ordinary. They are John and Jane Doe of Nazareth. They're the man and woman on the street. They're everyday citizens. They're ordinary. And then this ordinary couple we read are are caught up in very ordinary circumstances. Why are Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem in the first place? Look look at verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Here we read of of Caesar Augustus, who's who's a fascinating character. He's from a famous family. His great uncle was Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar obviously had had a liking for this nephew of his and and blessed him with uh, riches and with favor. And then when the time came for Julius Caesar to declare who his son and heir would be, he declared that it would be Caesar Augustus. Coming into power, Caesar Augustus then became famous for his organization. Firstly, of the military, he won several impressive battles, including the naval defeat of Anthony and Cleopatra. And then he also became famous just for for organizing the empire. He launched building programs and he developed infrastructure and he promoted the arts and the literature. And in line with this kind of methodical nature, he decreed that they should have a, a census. Why? Because he wanted to further organize his empire, and so he wanted to have a better handle on how many people were in it. And so comes verse 4. Look with me there. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary. Mary and Joseph are there caught up in the crosswaves of this census, which is impacting who? Everyone in the entire Roman world. So for them, there's no special treatment. They have no status or, or, or prestige that would grant them an exemption. Uh, there's also no transportation. They make this 90-mile journey on foot, perhaps with a donkey. When they arrive there, there are no vacancies, much less a welcoming party. They're an ordinary couple navigating through ordinary circumstances. 
Then what happens when they get there? They have a a seemingly ordinary baby. Look at verse 6. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. It's interesting as the text describes that, you know, over in fields nearby, there's angels appearing and heavenly choruses and grand things happening. Here in the stable, it's a much more normal scene. Mary finally settles down for the night, perhaps a little blue about her accommodations, but glad to have a roof over her head. And as soon as they get there, contractions begin. Nothing will bring on labor like a 90-mile donkey journey, right? (laughs) The internet has nothing on that, right? Cannot recommend you anything. And Mary thinks, seriously? (laughs) We're going to do this now. This is going to happen here. That's how things are going to unfold. Yes, and then everything unfolds pretty much as you'd expect. An ordinary labor. What does that mean? Painful. Difficult. An ordinary delivery. They cut the cord. They clean the baby up. This isn't TV birth. You know, child is born looking three months old like he's just had a bath. You know? (laughs) That's not Jesus. And then they have ordinary first moments. The baby cries. I'm sure there were some moments when the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, but most of the moments, like most babies, he cried. Parents, ooh and ah, remember the excitement of your first or any child? They look at the wee fingers, they look at the wee toes, they squeeze the baby, they attempt that first feed, they swaddle him in cloth so that he, and more importantly, mum, can have a nap. It's normal. It's Ordinary. One preacher says that if there'd been a doctor in the stable, he'd have said the words that every new parent wants to hear. Everything's normal. Normal. The couple, their circumstances, their baby, all seemingly mundane, average, ordinary. In Mary and Joseph, we see that the gospel comes to, to ordinary people. The second truth we see in this text that speaks into our spiritual flatness is that the gospel doesn't just come to ordinary people, but in the shepherds, it also comes to unworthy people. Yes, the gospel comes to, to ordinary people, but it goes further than that. It goes further than just people who are mundane, routine, uh, average. It extends to coming to those who are unworthy. These unworthy shepherds make their appearance in, in verse 8. Do you see it there? And in the same region, there were shepherds out in their fields doing what? Keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, when we think of shepherds, we tend to have this um, kind of wholesome pastoral scene that comes to mind. You know, I'm thinking rolling hills, and I'm thinking a sunny day, and I'm thinking some fluffy sheep, and a fluffy beard, and a staff, and a butterfly kind of floating around, you know? <laughs> And all is well with everyone's soul, you know? In reality, in Jesus' day, things weren't quite that way. In Jesus' day, in fact, the shepherds were quite a disreputable group. It wasn't always the case in biblical history, but in Jesus' day, the shepherds were a disreputable group. Why? At least three reasons. First of all, they were an uneducated group. They were a poor class of people who were considered unskilled. Yes, they fulfilled a necessary duty, but they fulfilled a very unimpressive one. The establishment of the day looked down their noses with disdain at the shepherds. Do you see people? Understand, we would not be impressed with their resume. If they applied, they'd be the first to be cut. Uneducated group. 
The second reason they were disreputable is they were considered an unreliable group. For various reasons, they were deemed untrustworthy, to be of, of suspect character. So much so that in Jesus' day, the, te- the shepherd's testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law, even if they had been eyewitnesses to a crime. Isn't that amazing? It's hard for us to think of a, an entire professional class that we would just assume to be liars. You know? <laughs> Insert lawyer joke here, yeah? And we send them to court, you know? Uneducated, untrustworthy, and thirdly, disreputable, most significantly, considered unclean. And by unclean, we mean ceremonially, religiously unclean. The shepherds were considered dirty, spiritually filthy, because their work prevented them from fulfilling the standard obligations of the law. They didn't attend temple, they didn't complete the ceremonial washings, they didn't offer the right sacrifices. The shepherds were people, they were never in church. They never went to small group, they never went to prayer meeting. They were a group of people who were deemed as, as, as irreligious. And so educationally and legally and religiously, they were despised. And it's to them, it's to these people, it's to these shepherds, these unworthy, disreputable, despised shepherds, that the angels appear, shedding light. Shedding light literally and then theologically. Look at verse 9. An angel of the Lord appears, and the glory of the Lord shines around them. Then, verse 10, we get the theological light. Fear not, they say. Why? Because I bring you good news. What kind of good news? Good news that will bring great joy. For who? For all the people. What is this news? For unto you, unworthy shepherds, this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To these shepherds, these unworthy men, is given the gospel message that Jesus has come. He's called Savior, the one who will will save his people from their sin. He's called Christ, meaning Messiah, the one who was long awaited, much anticipated, this, this Redeemer has arrived. He's called Lord, meaning God himself. And who's the message given to The shepherds. The shepherds, I love this. They're the ones who are introduced this time to a different kind of lamb. A lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. I love that this good news comes to who or for who? For all people. Not just the powerful, not just the popular, not just the pious, but to the ordinary. And it's given unto who? Unto the shepherds. Not for the educated, not for the reliable, not for the religious, but for the unworthy. The gospel comes to ordinary and unworthy people. Now, why do I love this? Why am I taken with these details? Why are they so significant? Why do they speak into our our spiritual flatness? Simple point, you can see it coming, and it's this. The gospel comes to ordinary and unworthy people because the gospel is for ordinary and unworthy people. 
The gospel comes to ordinary people like Mary and Joseph and it comes to unworthy people like the shepherds because the gospel is for ordinary and unworthy people. So do you feel a little ordinary? Do you feel a little unworthy? Are you not one of these people, you know, the kind of spiritual superhero? A couple of weeks ago we described it, you know, as that feeling that you're always playing the spiritual uh, Robin to someone else's Batman, right? Is that how you feel? If If that's you, if that's me... It means the gospel of Christmas is for us. It's for the ordinary. It's for the unworthy. And that is the gospel of Christmas. That relationship with God and all the blessings that that entails from eternity to time are not based on how amazing and remarkable you are, but on how amazing and remarkable our God is. That's the message of the gospel. Come for a people who by definition are in need of grace and showered with the same to his glory. Now, okay, you say, I'm on board. Good. Preach it. Love it. Still feeling flat. Right? What, what do we do in these circumstances? Well, let's take a closer look at what the, the shepherds did because I think there's something instructive here for us. It's interesting how the passage unfolds. Verse 9 Angels appear, shepherds terrified. Okay? Verse 20, fast forward, uh, shepherds leave glorifying and praising God. What is it that takes the shepherds from verse 9, fear, to verse 20, worship? What is it that makes the difference for them? Let's look first at verse 12, where the angels tell the shepherds to go and see Jesus. You see it there? This will be a sign for you. What will be the sign for us? You will find a baby. Who's the baby? Jesus, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. What do do the shepherds do? Verses 15 and 16, they go and they see Jesus. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing, they say. So they go with haste. They find Mary and Joseph. They find the baby lying in a manger. Then verse 20, it comes, having seen Jesus, seeing Jesus makes all the difference. The shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They had heard the message, and when they saw him, they worshipped. When they saw the thing they had heard about, then they worshipped. And this, this reminds us this, this spiritual reality that our, our spiritual vitality is not fostered just by hearing about Jesus, but by seeing him. Not fostered just by hearing about him, but by seeing him. That our spiritual vitality is based first and foremost not upon a message, not upon a principle, not upon a truth, but upon a person. And we're taken out of our, our spiritual flatness when we encounter Christ. Three tips for you if you're spiritually flat this morning in light of these truths. First thing you need to do if you're spiritually flat is, is this. Just be honest about it. Be honest about it. Even at this time of year. And this is such an important point because like, we're, we're not, we're not going to be that church. This is a pulpit pounding moment for me. Okay, We're, we're not going to be that church that just goes through the motions, does the right things, says the right things, even if there's not a heart of, of grace behind it. The Bible actually has a word. You, when you do one thing and feel another way, the Bible has a word for that. It calls it hypocrisy. The Bible has a lot to say about hypocrisy. 
And so it's okay to acknowledge that you're spiritually flat. It's okay to acknowledge that you're struggling. It's even okay in this season where we've joy and celebration and flowers and candles and trees and wreaths and all sorts of great fun things which are all good and of themselves. But it's okay to acknowledge, yeah, do you know what? In the midst of all this, in the midst of all this celebration, I'm, I'm not doing that great. That's the first thing. Just be honest about it. Second thing you need to do when you're spiritually flat, and uh, I'm stepping on my toes, okay? What does that mean? It means about step on yours, okay? Um, recognize when you're spiritually flat that the problem is you. So what, what's my problem? My problem is me. Now, some of you might sometimes think that your problem is me, <laughs> but actually, your problem is you, okay? Um, let me read you this great quote, Flannery O'Connor, 20th century Southern writer and essayist. Uh, she prays this prayer and she says, Dear God, I cannot love you the way I want to. Listen to this. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. I'll read that again. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. And then she says, I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Isn't that good? I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. She starts with this remarkably spiritually honest description of her spiritual flatness. And then she acknowledges that the problem here is herself. I was thinking this, it's kind of like, if I don't have my glasses on or my contacts in, then when I watch the TV, everything looks fuzzy. Right? And do you know what I can do? I can fiddle with the TV all day and it won't look any better. Why? Because the problem's not with that. Picture's perfectly clear. Problem is down here with me. And we need to sort of recognize this when it comes to our spiritual fatness, that the problem is, is here with us. Because we know, you know, that right now the screen is clear. You know the TV is working just fine. You know Jesus is intrinsically beautiful right now, irrespective of how you're feeling about that. That in this very moment, he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Now and evermore, because he's intrinsically that way. And that if we did see him for a second, it would be enough to make us fall on our face and love him forever. And so we say, yeah, problem isn't up there. Problem's a little closer to home. Yes, I'm spiritually flat. I can be honest with it. And yes, I see that the problem is here with me. So what do I do? Third thing, you do what the shepherds did, and you seek Jesus. You seek Jesus. Not the message, not the principle, not the truth, but the person. The personal relationship with him that he calls you to. How do you seek Jesus? How do you bring yourself to this person? I'm going to tell you quickly ten things I do. Okay? And you don't have to do all of these things, although we all should do some of these things. Okay? And you might have other things too. And if you do, I want to know about them. Um, first two are old school. Okay? 
first one is the word. The second one is prayer. Now, let me preface this first. You know we have a, a big problem in healthcare whereby we'll give uh, a doctor will give you a prescription, say an antibiotic, and people will take it, and then they'll feel better, and then what do they do? They stop taking it. They don't take their full course. And they go back to the doctor and, doctor and say, I'm sick again. And the doctor says, well, did you finish your prescription? And they say, no. And the doctor rolls their eyes. Okay? Um, What's the problem? We don't really believe that the simple thing will work. And I feel that problem personally, and I'm sure some of you are the same way, when it comes to the importance of Bible study and prayer. Like if I'm flat, the temptation is I want something innovative, something new, something to give me a spark, something to give me life. And I feel God rolling his eyes and saying, just finish the prescription. <laughs> the time in the Word. Not overanalyzing it, reading the gospel stories, encountering Christ as he is, seeing the grace and truth of his soul crucified for you. It brings change. Coming to him in prayer, talking, wrestling, complaining, brings a spiritual health to us, brings us into his presence. That's the first two. Third one, for me, probably no surprise, uh, sermons. Sermons are a big help to me. I listen to a lot of sermons. I listen to a lot of preachers. Often do it on my commute on the way to work. And that's good because it means that I praise God, not curse man. Um, which is a good thing. And uh, that just brings a kind of a life to me. It brings an energy to me. I'll be uh, told about Jesus in a way that, that brings encouragement to my soul. Uh, fourth way for me, that bring myself to Jesus. Uh, solitude. Now this is a hard one for me. It's one I'm learning. I'm extrovert by nature. I like to be with people. I have a hard time just being by myself. But, you know, you shake the snow globe and it takes a little while for things to settle. So it sometimes takes a little while for the soul to settle. And to get some time where it doesn't need to be a whole day, even just a couple hours, to sit and be at peace before the Lord. Number five, uh, conversely to solitude, uh, bring yourself to Jesus through, through fellowship. Who are those people that you have those kind of relationships with, relationships built around those things that matter most, that when you see them, it's just a spiritual encouragement. I am sure, I don't know what it is, sitting around a fire pit with an adult beverage is good for your soul. (laughs) And um, I told the second service, I haven't found the verse yet, (laughs) okay? (laughs) But I'm just sure that's true. It just seems to be true. You connect with people, you talk, you share, it's well with your soul. Number six, another big one for me is is worship. Worship is really helpful for me to connect to Jesus because it reminds me of reality. You know, sometimes you can feel a little bit like, well, you know, to the outside world, worship might be a bit strange, might be a bit kind of weird. Actually, worship is the closest thing we get to reality. When we're in this place and God is being lifted up and we're reminded these things are true, that's good for my soul. I couldn't preach <laughs> like the first, you know, call to worship sermon, okay? I couldn't, I couldn't do that because worship calibrates the soul in a way that, that connects you to the truth of Christ. Number seven, music. That's a big one for me. Find a playlist that's an encouragement to your soul and play it. Number eight, uh, going for a run. That helps me. Uh, get out of the office, clear the head, uh, get some fresh air, hurt a little. That's good. That's a good thing. Um, I think especially 
uh, well, for, for, for all people, but especially for young people, it's good to be connected to some physical pain because it connects you to your uh, spiritual weakness. Yeah? Reminds you you're not invincible. That's a good thing. Uh, clear the head, get some fresh air. At number nine, my least favorite way to connect to Jesus uh, is through fasting. Is that a discipline any of you do? It, it ought to be a discipline we all do. Whether it's food, technology, other things. Setting these things aside so that all of your heart and affections and thoughts and intentions are focused on Christ. Number 10 for me, big help to connect to Christ, is just serving other people. I, I tend to struggle a little bit with, um, you know, small world syndrome, getting self-absorbed insular. And so to lift the horizon of your heart to other people and serve them, whether it's your family or the community, it reminds you that there are bigger things on the horizon. Spiritual vitality is fostered not just by hearing about Jesus, but by seeing him. And so you need to do those things that will bring you into his presence. Not because he will be more pleased with you when you do, but because when you do, you will realize how pleased he is with you. And that will inflate your spiritual flatness. Closing time. Gospel comes to ordinary and unworthy people. Because the gospel is for ordinary and unworthy people. I wonder this Christmas if we see him. Do we see him? Let's pray. Father, there are elements of the Christmas story that are amazing and remarkable and unbelievable. And for those, we are grateful. But this morning, Lord, I'm, I'm just as grateful for mundane and the average and the ordinary. For the fact that the gospel comes to ordinary people. To people like Mary, to people like Joseph, who aren't powerful or popular or pious, but are just ordinary. And more than that, Lord, the gospel comes not just to the ordinary, but to the unworthy. To to shepherds. The uneducated, the the unreliable, the, the unclean. Lord, we need a gospel that comes to ordinary and unworthy people because that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so we thank you for for a gospel like that. And Lord, when we are struggling spiritually, when we're not doing so well, when we feel flat, I ask that this would indeed be a place where we can be honest about that, acknowledge how we're really doing, where we can also be honest about the fact that, that the problem here is, is us. And that together we can, we can seek Jesus. Not just hearing about him, but, but seeing him. The spiritual life that is found when we live in his lap. We pray all these things in the perfect and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.